From DLA Piper, this is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper's Isabel Ord, Mark Dwyer, and Jose Sosa discuss the global implications of recent bank failures. Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Curve, DLA Piper's podcast. I'm Isabel Ord, DLA Piper's U.S. co-chair for the financial services sector, co-chair of the U.S. Class Action Group, and U.S. co-chair of the Global Class Action Group. I'm joined today by Mark Dwyer, Global Co-Chair of the Financial Services Sector, based in London, and Jose Sosa, Co-Head of Financial Services Latin America, based in Puerto Rico. In a recent podcast, we looked at the regulatory and supervisory fallout from the bank failures earlier this year. Those events were remarkable, not just in their immediate impact, but in the ways they continue to affect the banking and financial services industry in the U.S. and globally. Today, we're looking at how ripples created by those bank failures spread globally and where they may continue to spread. The bank failures showed us, first of all, that interest rate risk is real. After almost two decades of low interest rates, both the U.S. Federal Reserve and the Bank of England have raised interest rates to pre-2008 financial crisis levels. When interest rates rose, many banks had unrealized losses, and ultimately for some banks, this proved fatal, as their depositors began rapidly withdrawing funds. The speed with which this happened caught both bankers and their regulators by surprise, spurred in part by what some now call the first social media-driven bank run. And the ripples from these events spread rapidly in the U.S. and beyond. Mark, what was the experience of the English and EU banks during this period, and what trends do you see playing out now? Thanks, Isabel. Yes, of course, the ripple effect from some of the bank failures that we saw has rolled across the world and into the U.K. and into the wider European markets as well. One of the US banks that failed had a UK subsidiary, which the UK financial regulators, including the PRA, were very active in supervising. And there was, in effect, the equivalent of a resolution weekend in relation to Silicon Valley Bank UK, which was transferred to HSBC over that weekend. That also resulted in deposits being fully protected and all of the liabilities of the bank transferring across to HSBC's new ownership of the same entity. So they transferred the business, they just transferred the subsidiary. What that has done, and one of the big ripples from this, is potentially an expectation in the market now that regulators will intervene not only to protect the insured depositors, but the wider bank generally. And That is something we have covered on another podcast, and that moral hazard risk increase is something that will no doubt play out in the next financial crisis, should one happen. Looking more widely at Europe, obviously had similar things happen, and for different reasons, there was a very large Swiss bank, which everybody knows about, which itself ended up being taken over by its main global competitor based also in Switzerland, and that has resulted in obviously some rather significant changes in the investment banking space as those two businesses have consolidated and combined. Within the wider market, what we are really seeing generally from the interest rate rises is a slowdown in activity as that has led to pricing increases, put lots of M&A on hold, and also started the financial services sector generally worrying about refinancing risk, a lot of the loans and the interest rate, cash coverage and the ratios are not necessarily set up for that. We will 
see, I'm sure, through the conversation, some of the themes that that's generating come through. Jose, initially, all eyes were on the U.S. banks and then almost immediately, as Mark said, on a couple of the European banks. But what was the experience in Latin America and what trends do you see playing out now? Well, thank you, Isabel. Well, now that there has been a few months after the events back in March, there have been some analysis of how those events affected the Latin American and Caribbean region. And some reports have concluded that there hasn't been a contagion of the issues in the U.S. and in Latin America, duly primary because the deposit base in the area is more retail deposits and that the way that they manage interest rate risk is through short-term securities and durations of those security portfolios. So they were able to deal with those issues. But having said that, that doesn't mean that it had no effects. For example, very large banks have withdrawn, if you will, from Latin America for compliance issues, mostly issues of cost of doing business in the area. And some regional banks have taken the opportunity to offer correspondent banking relationship and other type of accounts within the region. And some of those regional banks were affected by the bank failures and the dominant effect that some of those failures had. So there was some effect in certain areas. Also, there was a liquidity pressure during that time, mostly in economies in Latin America that are mostly dollar-based, Ecuador, Panama, those kind of regions. And there was also, as Mark mentioned, I think, and this is a trend, that regulators are now more in tune that when these events occur, that they will react more expediently to try to solve the issues, not only for depositors, but for the institutions themselves, in order to contain any effects that could be systemic. I think there is a shell shock effect from what happened in 2008, that that has an effect worldwide and in Latin America and the Caribbean region is not different. So when this kind of situations happen in the US, they are very worried that the effects will be maybe even larger in the region. For example, in the region, the issues about inflation pressure are larger than in the U.S., and that determines the dynamics of how these issues could have affected the region. One of the analyses that I saw recently concluded that the bank failures themselves did not have much effect in the region by doing an analysis of the stock prices of banks in which in the U.S. they typically had an average down effect of around 15% and in the region Latin America was around 5%. So I think that the consensus is that there wasn't contagion but that there are effects felt and maybe on the regulatory side is the most important one that regulators will be looking into this kind of situations in order to avoid possible systemic risk from growing. That's right. I think certainly regulators, you have to get the toolbox out and have a good look at it all. I think they will probably feel that the post-2008 toolbox worked in that they did manage to avoid real contagion. And as I said earlier, I think what it has probably done is increase the moral hazard. And I suspect regulators are looking long and hard now as to what messaging they can start sending back into the market to try and reassert some degree of moral hazard where customers do look at the credit of the institutions they deposit with. And the market has a degree of control, which certainly in the theory of regulators it is meant to. But now having bailed banks out in 2008 and now through earlier 2023, there is a 
concern at the regulator level that they are now setting themselves up, notwithstanding all those resolution tools for intervention rather than resolution. So it will be interesting to see what happens next in that space, but certainly disaster averted this time around. No, when the crisis began, one of the banks was the third largest bank failure. And people at that time were thinking, hey, well, here we go again. So the lessons learned in 2008, as Mark says, appeared to have sunken deep. <laughs> there were other issues that were not present in this way around that were present in 2008 that made the crisis maybe more manageable. But the effect of having more urgency and be more alert clearly worked. Yeah, and with that, I mean, obviously, regulators have far more information at the moment now as a result of the post-2008 reforms. The banks report much more detail. There was less of a feeling of not knowing where risk was than there was, certainly if I remember back in 2008, the big issue was nobody knew who ultimately was holding what risk. And that's obviously different with the reporting regime. It's been good to see that come through. Obviously, there are also extra resolution toolkits, the ability to transfer ownership, which didn't exist in 2008 and suddenly in the UK experience, those were used to transfer the bank to HSBC. So as a result of that, we definitely are seeing some of the positives of the post-2008 redrawing of the regulatory landscape. But it's, as I say, it's going to be interesting as to whether people really want that to be the playbook for the future. If multiple institutions were failing, I suspect they probably would have to go into looking properly at resolution and there would be some degree of loss potentially for some larger deposit holders beyond the insured threshold, but we can't predict the future and still think clients and depositors should think carefully about where they deposit their money. The old adage of, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, it applies to deposits as well, so the rate looks very attractive, there's probably a reason that institution is offering a high rate. Mm-hmm. Certainly the interest rate environment contributed to the crisis in early 2023. There still seem to be some things moving under the surface in a rising interest rate environment. There are borrowers under stress out there, including ongoing liquidity issues. And while capital is available for high-quality borrowers, an institution should want to lend into higher interest rate environments. There are some areas of concern that remain. Mark, in particular, what are you seeing in the area of derivatives? Are there things that we should be watching? Absolutely, Isabel. I mean, so many lenders now are not prepared to lend without, in effect, hedging against future interest rate changes. We've been in a world of quantitative easing-driven, cheap, almost free money for so many years. The market has started to relax the requirement to hedge interest rate exposure, and there definitely were borrowers who are caught out by that and lenders with exposures that are not fully hedged. And again, we will need to wait and see how those work through the system over the coming years. But in terms of new lending, we are absolutely seeing a move there to require hedging. And in the most part, that's starting to be seen as requiring swaps as opposed to the use of interest rate caps, which we had seen when hedging was used until very recently. Oftentimes, borrowers would just buy a cap to protect against an increase in interest rate movement. But the price of a cap now is prohibitive, so most borrowers tend to be moving into using swaps. So we're definitely now seeing a rise again in our corporate clients putting in place hedging programs with all of their relationship lenders so that when something is needed, they can run a price competition among the various lenders that they have relationships with. So we're seeing a lot of our clients come to us wanting us to put in place programs with their various lenders to try to standardize those, and those tend to be corporate borrower-driven rather than institution-driven. 
And that's something I would think financial institutions need to be alive to because borrowers are trying to push their terms through, which are not always fully aligned with what the banks want to see. I mean, borrowers do, of course, expect regulatory differences between those programs, depending on the jurisdiction of the first institution. But beyond that, they're trying very hard to align those provisions, which just makes that negotiation that little bit harder for a financial institution when a corporate basically tries to play one institution off against another. So something clients need to be alive to, but absolutely seeing a lot more use of derivative hedging. I mean, it doesn't solve the underlying cash flow problem. The swap cash flows still need to be capable of being met, whatever the swap fixed rate is for a borrower, and they need to be able to demonstrate to lenders that their cash flows will support that. So we're definitely seeing more of that. We've seen the same effect in the region, but sometimes the offering from banks includes an adjustable rate structure. And there are certain markets within Latin America and the Caribbean in which the market is essentially a fixed rate structures for lending. But now that there is a change in interest rates, a rather dramatic one in the last few months, they are now open to using derivative structures, which they before were not because they were relying on the bank managing the interest rate risk. But now financial institutions are trying to manage it differently. And yes, what Mark says, we've seen it. There is a surge in the use of derivatives mostly swaps in order to deal with the lending side. On the funding side of things for depository institutions, what we've seen, and it has to do also maybe augmented by the bank failures, the bank failures of these banks in 2023 also affected businesses that had large deposits, not retail deposits, which is a situation in which you have only $250,000 insurance through the FDIC. And if you have large deposits, most of the deposit is subject to the financial institution risk because it's not subject to the deposit. And there has been development of new products by financial institutions to arrange certain structures to have all the deposit subject to deposit insurance be through a segmentation, if you will, of the deposits in $250,000 tranches with different institutions, diversifying the risk of bank failure and having most of the deposit subject to that insurance. That is not to say that that it's a panacea to deal with the issue because it's not entirely uh, cheap to do that. Those platforms has a cost and are to be proven yet. But there's a resurgence of those and maybe augmented by the fact that the bank failure affected clients that had those kind of large deposits, which are more relevant in venture capital and private equity situations in contrast to retail deposits of the general public. That would raise similar challenges, I think, in the European market, just trying to ensure that it, each of those products is properly eligible, that each customer has a direct relationship with the credit institution that holds the deposit. So that would obviously create different KYC requirements and perhaps differently from in the United States when you go cross-country jurisdiction borders, those KYC requirements will differ slightly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So trying to put that in place on a sort of pan-European basis would be probably more challenging, but it would be very interesting to see if we start seeing products like that as well in the European market. Within the UK only, we have fewer large banks that you could spread the risk among, so probably manageable by the large corporates themselves if they just want to spread the risk among different UK-based banks. But if somebody's trying to do that on a pan-European basis, if somebody can come up with a product, that helps them do that in the way some of these U.S. products 
are doing. I'm sure that would be well received in the market, but it, the jurisdictional nature of it does raise additional challenges. Yeah, that's why they need to be tested. <laughs> and the factor that you mentioned in regards to compliance is a very important one, because at least under US regulation, you cannot rely on the compliance review of just one bank. Each bank has to do its own KYC and follow its own anti-money laundering BSA procedures for each account they open. So it's not an issue of somebody having a platform that just facilitates the opening of accounts, those accounts in those banks need to follow their compliance requirements as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's the same, I think, in all major jurisdictions. And there's long been talk about somebody trying to come up with a panacea product that does do third-party agency KYC for everybody, but will need some change of the regulation before anything like that could happen. But certainly the market would welcome such a program if it were ever to be developed and regulators wherever to allow. Mm -hmm. This conversation raises really interesting considerations about whether the playing field has changed, both for banks and their commercial customers coming out of the bank failures in 2023, whether there are new duties of care and different things to be thinking about in terms of managing the risk that exists when all of your deposits are at a single institution. In fact, in the U.S., there were a couple of really tense days where people were very concerned that potentially they had lost enormous amounts of money and the government did step in and ultimately stemmed what might have been a very serious banking crisis. But these risks persist, and as Mark said earlier, the government may not be there next time. So lots to think about in this space. And certainly also when you have an event like we did with the bank failures, there is litigation that comes out of that. Some of it we've seen already, and some has not yet materialized, and some interesting developments in the pullback of availability of venture capital funding, which certainly has affected startups that had been more accustomed to free-flowing capital. And likely this trend has not fully played out yet. There are some interesting areas to watch, including economic sectors that had struggled coming out of COVID-19. Commercial real estate definitely comes to mind. That one seems to be still on a slow burn. And there may be some overconcentration risks out there, particularly in commercial real estate, a lesson that we learned in the financial crisis, and some trends that are still playing through, like the work from home trend, meaning that businesses need far less office space, and potentially there'll be some further distress there. We certainly have seen that playing out in Northern California, where I'm based. And there also seem to be some interesting challenges in Asia, particularly in China. Mark, what do you think about that? Are there risks of contagion there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've recently spoken to a number of regional executives in some of the Asian banks and also the Asian branches of European banks, and there is a lot of concern around the exposure to real estate in China. That is, through a number of avenues, both, as you say, the impact of COVID and retrenchment, there's some degree of movement of resources as a result of geopolitical issues out of China to other areas of the region like Vietnam and Indonesia. And as a result of that, plus the increase in interest rates, which are not fully hedged and without corresponding increases in rent, you're seeing cash flow mismatches coming through at some of those entities. So we lost just very recently last week, a number of large banks did take large write-downs on their Asia exposure, and that has had quite a large impact on the share price of some institutions. So that's a real concern that people have. In terms of institutions with exposures to that sector and region, our colleagues in our restructuring practice are already seeing an uptick 
inactivity in that practice area. And we have seen there are already some bankruptcies filed and also, as you mentioned, litigation risk. There's already some litigation being filed around some of that. Now, we would expect to see some concerns around disclosures that had been made at the time of loans. I mean, as always, when a loan goes into distress, there's a lot of focus back to what was said originally at the time the loan was put in place in terms of looking for ways to recover beyond the asset security that was granted. And also people will look around the information that was provided. So definitely institutions that have exposures should be making sure their records are preserved and carefully make sure they pull together because if something does happen, they may need to act quickly and may need to get litigation teams involved very quickly to protect their position, particularly if the borrowers start using bankruptcy techniques to try and sort of restructure and get through that. So I think definitely an area that we are seeing an increasing focus on from our clients and one that's certainly going to flow through. And we are seeing that institutions taking write downs and I suspect for institutions that haven't yet taken write downs in the space, but have exposure, a lot of focus will come on them from their investors to try to justify their current position. So definitely something we will see coming through. In the Latin American region, the big issue is inflation and rising interest rates. And the issue about inflation, who right now is really one of the key elements in the elections in Argentina, in which the country has experienced severe effects of inflation and rising interest rates, and they're facing it again. So those are the things that are in the minds of voters and in the region. There are other places in Latin America also that are struggling with rising interest rates. And also there's this fear of deposit runs in the region, which had happened before. And sometimes regulators and governments take the position of restricting the amount of deposit that customer can withdraw. And that creates economic problems or trolls in the region. And those are in the minds of many people right now because of rising interest rates and inflation. So I think that there is a risk of contagion within the region, all of that. So that's something in the minds of regulators and market participants in the meantime. Absolutely. And again, we're seeing very similar things playing out in the European space and more generally across the world. It's going to be very interesting come the end of 2024, if we try and look ahead. We're going to have, obviously, the U.S. in an election cycle, probably at the same time as the United Kingdom is in an election cycle, although there's already been some warnings from some of the security professionals about cyber risk at a point when two of the major Five Eyes countries are facing elections at what could be at the same time, and they've actually tried to caution the U.K. against calling their elections at exactly the same time as the U.S. But if you play that into the away from geopolitical security, but if you look that in, play that into our world of the financial services, if there is a bank run problem in that period during the election cycle, that itself could be a further challenge, you know, the ability to act at a time when potentially the US could be in a transitional arrangement, the UK also, that could slow down the ability of regulators to act because typically regulators act in conjunction with the government rather than independently from it. So that's a period of potentially of great weakness for the financial system, final quarter of 2024. We would certainly make sure, say to clients, you need to definitely be on top of your exposures in advance of that and be ready to act. It's going to be very interesting just to see. Hopefully, 
inflation will be tamed and the cost of living crisis will have averted by then and everything will be looking rosier and we'll be seeing back to M&A activity. But just wanting to sound a note of caution, I think the geopolitics of the world at the moment and also we're seeing what's playing out, for example, in the Middle East, there is a lot of risk of contagion generally and that will can and often does show up in the financial sector as well. And we saw at the beginning of this year how quickly things can change, how quickly an institution can go from being in good shape, at least in the eyes of the regulators, to on the precipice of failure, in part, I think, driven by social media and a lot of new trends that are out there in the marketplace. Thank you so much for joining us for today's discussion. We've tried to think about trends and issues that may not be so obvious and to look into the future and give you an idea of what you should be thinking about as this trend continues to mature both locally and globally. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve podcast. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast. Thank you.